in this webinar, I would like to demonstrate how the web-based software QCI interpret can be used to perform rapid and comprehensive interpretation of sequence variants. We do need this type of software because things have changed in the past. In the past, that's in the so-called Sanger area uh, era, where we uh, performed mostly Sanger sequencing. Variant interpretation was pretty uh, simple and straightforward. We had only a few sets of criteria, for example, like the type of mutation, with frame shift mutations being considered more effective than stop mutations, and these being more effective than distance mutations, and these being more effective than silent mutations. And um, missense mutations actually have always been the most tough ones. And in, in, in the 70s, Grantham developed a so-called Grantham score, which is mainly based on amino acid properties, and later on this has been translated into effective prediction software, which also took other parameters into account, like evolutionary conservation of a given amino acid. And these, uh, this criterion had a huge impact on variant interpretation. On top of that, back then we had mostly familial segregation, which means we just checked um, members of a given family for the absence or presence um, of a given mutation, and if all the uh, uh, affected people had a uh, variant of interest and the other ones didn't, then we were pretty sure this might have a, um, might be the um, pathogenic mutation, and this also had a huge impact on variant interpretation. And back then, we only had small cohorts. Mostly when you had a vari variation of interest, you just sequence like a couple of hundred um, uh, people. And the advantage of that approach was that you most labs use their local program, so they had the local variant profile. And because you know all your own patients, you, you could select those that did actually not have the disease in question. That is pretty advantageous, but uh, basically we had just these three criteria. This has changed when NGS entered the scene, and um, due to NGS, uh, variant interpretation became a much more important issue for several reasons. The first reason is NGS uncovered mis mistakes made in the past, and it synthesized us for the pitfalls of variant interpretation. Bell et al., for example, in 2011, published a paper where they, based on the NGS data, they could show that 27% of mutations cited in the literature were found to be common polymorphisms or misannotated. So, uh, at least uh, almost one-third of our variant classifications has been wrong in the past, so that's a big problem. You could now say, okay, what happened in the past stays in the past, but actually that's not true. Um, these uh, current uh, uh, mutation or variant data sets were used to develop the software which we have nowadays, like Polyfay and Sift and others. And so these softwares have been developed and trained on flawed um, lists of um, variants. And this is one reason. And the another one is, um, um, even nowadays, papers are published and, and also in many lab reports, you can see that, that sometimes just old literature is based without a critical evaluation and um, variant assessments from, from the past just make their way into modern lab reports without being critically evaluated. So the uh, mistakes made in the past uh, still uh, follow us today. And the second point why uh, NGS changed um, variant interpretation so much is for several reasons. Some are listed here. One, of course, is the sheer amount of variants that is produced by NGS is much, much larger than whatever could be produced by Sanger sequencing. And, but uh, it's not all that bad. NGS uh, uh, has lots of 
makes it easier. For example, now with NGS, we have huge control datasets which haven't been available in the past. We can easily perform parent-child sequencing, which helps a lot to figure out uh, um, interesting variants from, from just those that have been uh, passed or are already present in the parents. And we can see all disease genes at once. So not only having a variant in a certain gene, but knowing that there is no variant in another gene, which also is associated with a given disease, it helps a lot. But on the other hand, we have um, NGS makes our life more difficult for several reasons. One is now we have also data from genes or in, from variants in genes of unknown significance, the so-called goose, and it's always very important not only to evaluate a given variant, but also to evaluate the gene of interest, whether it's really associated with the disease or not. And uh, it sound, might sound uh, nice at first, but later on it isn't. We have many, many more patients due to relaxed inclusion cr uh, criteria, and uh, many of our databases are uh, yeah, corrupted kind of with patients who have a diagnosis which is not actually true. Back then, you would only sequence P10 in a, in a person with a definite clinical signs of Cowden syndrome. Nowadays, NGS is so fast and so cheap, you're not sure about your diagnosis, but say, okay, let's put him in to this cohort, uh, we, we'll see about that. So we have, uh, we have um, variant data from disease groups where uh, some of the people actually don't have the disease and that may, may also be difficult. Um, now, when, ye, when we want to do variant interpretation, we have various challenges, or what we want to do is we want to be as correct uh, as possible, we want to be as transparent as possible, and we want to be as standards compliant as possible. Fortunately, we have lots of different uh, standards for variant interpretation now, and one of the most famous ones is, uh, are the so-called ACMG criteria. ACMG stands for American College of Clinical Genetics and Genomics, and in 2015, they published a very important paper uh, where they listed uh, certain criteria that are need to be checked in order to um, classify a variant, and on top of that, we also want to be as up-to-date as possible. Whoever uh, um, is responsible for, for NGS data analysis knows how tedious it is to, to uh, upload always the latest versions of like EXA, GNOMAS, or other databases, so you, and, uh, literature databases, so we want to be up-to-date and we want to be fast. And for these reasons, we uh, try to give QCI a shot. We heard about uh, QCI from several sources, and we just said, okay, that might be a way to go, this web-based um, software. So we uh, got a test account, and we tested it, and I will show you data about that in a minute. And this is web-based, so this, uh, what you can see here, is the... Uh, uh, you have a part of a, of a screen when you open QCI, and uh, you can upload a list of variants by uploading a VCF file uh, obtained from a different from, from a given sample, and then you get a list of like 100 or 200 variants, and for each one you can you can get uh, details, uh, lots of those, and uh, uh, on top you just get the, the the computed classification for a given variant. So this one would be computed by QCI as likely a pathogenic. And QCI interpretation, that is very important for, to us, is based on ACMG criteria. So let's look at those just briefly for, for those who um, are not too, uh, too familiar, familiar with it. 
uh, ACMG criteria do not offer a score. You don't come up with a certain value or something like that. It's more like putting weights on a scale. You have certain criteria for pathogenicity, and you have certain criteria for benefity of a given variant. And uh, um, the most important thing about um, ACMG is that the number of criteria is well defined, and the strength of each criteria is well defined as well. So you have certain arguments and a certain weight to certain arguments. And what we do now is just to, to, to gather all these arguments for both pathogenicity on one side, uh, benign on the other side, and then we just look, or the software looks, which, which of the scales here goes down or up. In, in this case, if this goes down, we have like a pathogenic variant or a pathogenic variant, and everything in between remains to be a variant of unknown, a significant so-called DUS or boost. And one of the main uh, benefits of ACMG, for example, is that criteria that I talked about earlier, which had a very, very important weight, uh, big weight back then, like familiar co-segregation or computation evidence are just now kind of like de degraded to just supporting arguments. And that is okay, because there is lots of um, familiar segregation with it's not actually uh, segregated with the variant, but with something else linked to that variant, maybe. So familiar co-segregation and computation evidence are just supporting and not and do not have so much weight anymore. And this, this is why, why, as far as we can tell, the number of falsely positive pathogenic mutations has dropped significantly, and now we are getting closer to the truth. And um, in order to check the QCI software, we uh, loaded it with missense variants mostly, because missense variants are the tough nuts to crack. All our data that I'm going to show today uh, are derived from one patient with one disease, which is hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, HBOC. So we have one clearly defined disease, and all of the patients, including our study, fulfilled the German criteria or the criteria of the German Consortium for Breast and Ovarian Cancer, so they are, we are totally sure that they have uh, um, a, a familiar predisposition to breast and ovarian cancer. And we sequence hundreds of those, and uh, many, many variants uh, that we uh, encountered are clear lots of function mutations, for example, like Gramsci mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. These are not included in this test here because this is an easy one, and we, we don't need software to interpret a, a frameshift mutation in BRCA1 in a patient with breast cancer. But what we need to do is to check uh, um, or evaluate missense mutations. So we, we put in 278 missense mutations. All have been derived by application of the two-side cancer panel from Illumina, which covers uh, 94 genes associated with tumor syndromes. And um, we did this back then when uh, and everything was done uh, manually. Uh, literature researches uh, um, looking up uh, exact or genomic variants, all this stuff has been done manually. And this was also be done before uh, the ACMG guidelines, which I just outlined a minute ago, were obligated to be used in our lab. But of course, many, many people who assess variants in the past applied many, many of those criteria intuitively, and so we do. So we put in 25 VUs, 16 pathogenic, or virus that we regard as pathogenic in Dresden, and 37 that we regard as likely benign. And on the next slide, you can see the outcome of this. Busy slide, I will get you through it. Uh, here is one of, uh, this one shows our 100% of boost variants that we put into the QCI software, and 
um, this is the, uh, the, uh, seventy three percent of those are still uh, considered to be boosts uh, by uh, QCI, but there are a few that are uh, considered to be pathogenic and a few that are considered to be benign. And the same or similar is true for uh, our pathogenic variants. The number is pretty low because missense variations are rare in breast cancer. Um, but still, 100% uh, variants we put in, 81% of those are still considered to be um, to be pathogenic by the software. Uh, only three of those are now considered to be those. And of course, these are the most interesting cases. We never had any uh, any um, case where um, the assessment by the software skipped uh, um, um, a, a level of pathogenicity. So we never had a pathogenic variation which turned out to be benign or uh, a benign variation which turned out to be pathogenic. So only we only shifted from one class to another. And I will show you uh, three examples from these two scenarios. A VUS from us, uh, qualified as or assessed as um, pathogenic by QCI and uh, um, and the pathogenic one by us assessed by QCI to be uh, just a variant of unknown significance. And I will go through these three examples. These are represent representative. All of our data are, are of the same kind. And I will show reasons for this disconcordance in variant assessment. But overall, the concordance rate is pretty high and would be higher if we had included uh, um, as a function mutation. So once you have a mutation, this one is an example, which in Dresden we, we classified as views, US, and in Dresden we follow the ICACMG recommendation that at least two people, independent people, have to look at the same variant. So we are at least two or three in the board who look at the same variant and then we agreed on this assessment as variant of unknown significance. And in this case, when we load it into the QCI web-based software, we can see that the software classified this variant as pathogenic. So, uh, the good thing is that you can see all um, all uh, arguments for that at one uh, uh, right away. And my screen is not not long enough. There are all the other stuff you would need to know, like um, um, population frequencies and uh, biochemical evidence. All this stuff can be assessed below. Also, if there is a clean by import uh, uh, record or uh, um, HDM, um, and, and data, other database records, you can see all those uh, cosmic entries, and so you can see it right away. That is the very, very main uh, advantage of software like this, which I really like. You get all uh, uh, information at your uh, at your fingertips, and you just go through. Okay, so here we can ha we have these these arguments, which leads to um, which leads to the final assessment of pathogenicity, and you can see we have both we have arguments for pathogenicity and those for benicity. And every time this happens, uh, all the estimations are already flagged as contradicted. You can see by 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 a sign here that we have arguments from both with, uh, from both sides, pathogenic or benign. And, um, and now you have uh, have to go through all of these. Uh, whatever the software does, it will never. Uh, make your own judgment obsolete. You will always be responsible for your own judgment. You will always have to think. You can, just can't uh, uh, click on a, a creative report and then you don't 
uh, um, yeah, you have to, to do perform a critical evaluation of each of these arguments. But all the information you need for that is right at hand. For example, when this this uh, when there are functional studies. Uh, um, out there in the literature, you can see the evidence, and by just by clicking on it, you, you can see the PubMed IDs, and you can you are directly linked to the papers. You can go to the papers directly and read them and read those. And, and in this in this case, um, the CUCI classification is uh, um, based on these two um, PubMed IDs. And if you read the papers, well, we we found that the uh, the variants are in the paper. That is pretty nice. Every time I checked. A, a given variant of interest is actually in the paper that has been cited. Sometimes we feel, um, sometimes you pick, would pick up literature where uh, a given gene is evaluated or variants in the given gene, but your special variant is not there. Here it's different. Whatever you see here is actually a paper that that quotes this special or this um, variant of interest. And so you can be sure it will be in the paper somewhere. But And in this case, when we looked at the papers and read them, with, we realized, uh, in our opinion at least, that these uh, functional tests um, have been performed, but the, the, the variation of interest showed only um, an intermediate result, not a very strong um, disabling of the of the of the chat two protein. So in this case you are able to uh, to decrease the strength of a given argument. For example, if you think okay there is uh, evidence but I think it's not just of moderate strength, you can just click on this this in this field and change it from maybe from strong to moderate or even from strong to supporting. If you don't agree with an argument at all, you can also remove it from this list. And whenever you do that the um, the variant is reclassified, so you get you will get an, a, no, a new assessment. For example, in this case, we would uh, uh, we would reduce the strength of this PS3 argument to moderate, and um, the, the second argument as well, which is um, um, that the the number of, of variants that you observe in public databases like EXAC or GNOMAT or the Southern Genome Project is higher than you would expect. Actually, we in our lab, at least, we do not consider this argument to be that strong because this argument implies that you uh, apply population-based data to an individual, and I think that should always be done with with great caution. If if, if the population risk is like three percent, that that does not mean that a given person also has a three percent chance of getting cancer or something like that. So we normally reduce this, the strength of this argument. And another uh, argument is the um, is PM PM one for example. That means this argument means uh, the, the, um, your uh, mutation of interest or variant of interest is uh, um, located within a, a mutational hotspot. And in this case, we do actually do not uh, agree. But the, the good thing is, for each variant, you always get. The whole gene model, for example, here is the gene model for check two, and you will get uh, an, 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 a lollipop uh, a, a presentation of all these pathogenic variants that have been uh, published so far, and that is makes it very easy for you to to see whether there's an action hotspot or not. That is very nice because if you have to to collect all these data for all your genes manually, that takes a lot of time, especially if you have an exome data with hundreds of genes you, you are not familiar with. Then you don't know the mutation distribution, and you have to put it together all by yourself. Here, you just can see it, 
in this special case, I would not consider the position of my variant as being in an actual hotspot. But of course, this is kind of definition uh, how you would define or what do you think uh, um, how dense mutations should be clustered within, in a region or the call is a hotspot. So these, all of this is kind of subjective. It's not totally objective. Uh, and I will talk about that later on when I uh, explain reasons for discordances between labs or between our lab and our software. So uh, in, in these cases, we would reduce the, the strength of the argument. After that, uh, this variant would be classified as goose, just uh, as we have classified it before. And I would still think it is a goose. But the, the, to judge it takes only a few minutes time because every information you need is at hand. Here's another example of a variant of unknown significance in a, in a gene called migraine. And, um, and we um, uh, classify this as views, uh, as VUS, based on uh, um, several arguments, but on one is that there is a database out there which is called FLOSI. Maybe people in the uh, cancer, breast cancer field know it. FLOSI stands for uh, Fabulous Ladies Over 70s. And this is a database built up by Mary Claire King. And they have sequenced uh, 10,000 individuals, females, who uh, were older than 70 years of age. And none of them ever had cancer in their entire life. So this, uh, there, uh, you would expect, and so far I think it's true, that none of pa really truly pathogenic um, um, mutations for breast and ovarian cancer are within this database. And this specific variant is in there like 20, in 28 cases. It's very unlikely that 28 women uh, became uh, older than 70 years without ever getting cancer in any of them. So this is not likely to be a pathogenic variant. And, in, and, uh, and what you can see here is um, that QCI is updated regularly and, and some computational evidence or classification change over time. For this, when I checked this variant with QCI in, in November 19th, um, this was classified as pathogenic, but later on, uh, uh, information, stuff like that, has been uh, incorporated into the assessment, and that's the nice thing. QCI is always up to date. In, in very, uh, within a very tight, tight schedule, uh, all the information that's available, like public databases, like new literature, is incorporated, and indeed, a, a, a few weeks later, this variant has been classified by QCI as a variant of uncertain significance, so there is no discordance anymore between us and what the software says, and that is very nice that you can that you can uh, that you that everything that turns up shows up uh, is is incorporated because you don't have the time to check all your your variants that you evaluated um, in the past once in a while and read the, all the literature again. So here, if something changes, you you can see that. And a last example, this is another case where we assess the variant as like a pathogenic and QCI says, no, this is a boost. And uh, there, there are several reasons for that. And again, when you just uh, look into your variant, you get all these, these arguments that are fulfilled. In this case, these arguments are, are fulfilled and these two as well. But if you have a closer look, there are two contradictory arguments, like PS3 on one hand and P BS3 uh, on the other hand. So they, um, PS3 means um, functional studies uh, support uh, an, an effect of the resulting protein. And this one is functional studies do not uh, show an effect of the protein. And they're talking about, they are talking about the same, uh, one is the same variant. So 
So this, uh, now you have to deal with it. This is not a problem of the software. This is just uh, the normal case where there is contradictional data in the literature. That happens all the time, uh, and um, you need to deal with that. In, in our case, we just removed this argument because we have one contradictory argument, PS, PS3, PS, um, BS3, and we removed both of them. And uh, after doing so, uh, we uh, uh, this this variant indeed uh, um, now is classified as likely pathogenic. So uh, also this discre discrepancy could be could be solved. And um, and this shows that uh, um, assessing a variant is kind of like a dynamic process. You need a software that is up to date that tells you oh, something has changed. And you can see if something changes, you, it's not notif notified. You can see there is a new assessment. And, and uh, as you might see here, you can also add criteria. Uh, I was just talking about or focusing on ACMG criteria, but of course you can add uh, uh, other criteria on top of that. You, you are not forced to stick to ACMG. You can use other uh, recommendations, uh, guidelines from other consortia or even from your own lab. If your boss says, my opinion uh, rules, then you can have a new criterion uh, uh, the opinion of my boss or our own lab expert decision and then you can just add it on top um, and then you have another another uh, criterion uh, and you can give it uh, a certain strength like um, PVS uh, pathogenic very strong for for example or uh, also quietion itself had uh, put into a, a, a set of, of arguments that you can also select, for example, the variant is an inferred gain-of-function mutation in an oncogene, for example, if you observe something like that, you can use this argument uh, created by Quiagen um, as PVS2. And as I just said before, you can also think about some some argument on your own, like what I said before, like uh, is absent or present in the Flossis database you can add arguments like that, and then you can use them, and they are taken into account into the final assessment of a given variant. Another thing that is, I think, pretty uh, uh, nice and helpful is you can share your variants. For example, I could share my variant list during my, the upload process with, like, a John Doe. Okay, uh, then I can, uh, and John Doe will later on see that the assessment has changed, and um, and of course everybody who say or they, uh, who changed something should make a comment. For example, in this case, I would uh, I I I've changed um, the strength of my argument, and here I'm explaining why. So John Doe later on can can look at this new assessment and see what kind of arguments made by whom has uh, led to the uh, to a change in the assessment so and that i think is a great great opportunity to for people all around the world to gather together and 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 throw their experience into one part by just sharing variants you can share variants with anybody who has an email address and who is a qci user that is pretty nice for example for consortia if you have a national consortium for a given disease they all can uh, share uh, their um, their variant lists of their samples, and then you can. And once you have an, uh, you encounter a, a variant, you can see. Oh, John Doe has seen this variant before, and you can look what John Doe uh, said about this variant, and you can see right away that John Doe maybe has has um, 
place a new assessment of this variant. So this is like a platform also for communicating uh, variant assessments between any lab in the world who is uh, who uses this. Okay, as you've seen earlier, there were discordances. These were the exceptions. Most of the assessments uh, concorded, but these are not so. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, uh, I think it's much more important to talk about discordances, and discordances are nothing new on the sun. People have uh, made um, exchanges of data between labs. For example, in the case of BRCA and one classification, lots of BRCA variants have been sent to several labs, and then they returned uh, uh, with their assessment, and there were discordances. The same has been done with the variants published in the Kinva database. Also, we have we have discordances uh, among um, entries in Kinva. Some have a, some classify variants as pathogenic, others as variants of unknown significance, and there are always the same two main reasons for these discordances. And these reasons are uh, the time of assessment and interpretation of literature. So, for example, old classifications based on old uh, Sanger data and old, old papers tend to, to be uh, um, discordant with novel assessments. For reasons I explained in the beginning, for example, if you quote an old paper from 2001, uh, then uh, the, uh, this, the variations in there might be classified as pathogenic due to, um, due to the uh, tools available back then. If you do it now, you would uh, reach another uh, um, assessment or uh, it's how you regard the literature. You, ten people can read one and the same uh, a paper about a functional study, and some would say, "Okay, this is a valid study. Uh, this uh, this essay actually uh, reflects what's actually going on in the real tissue." Others would say, "Okay, I don't believe that this cell line reflects what's going on in in the patient's tissue, so I don't regard this uh, essay as very as valid at all." And these these contradictions um, will uh, will. Uh, are just there over time. Some of them can be can be dissolved when people talk together and share their experiences. But some of these discordances can't be solved because they just uh, uh, depend on the view of the scientist who reads the paper and how he understands the relevance of a given essay. Uh, so we have to live with it, and sometimes we just have to agree to disagree. Uh, but these are. Uh, um, um, exceptions, the more those kind of uh, assessments are done uh, between labs, we can see that the number of, of uh, discordances decreases uh, uh, over time. So, uh, this do, uh, doing this in the next, this year or last year, there's only a, 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 a small number of discordances. The same studies done, uh, performed like five or ten years ago uh, showed much more, much higher levels of discordances between uh, experts and between labs. So it's okay that there are some some discrepancies and they will remain as long as we don't uh, as long as we don't have actually really really good uh, valid function assays or additional information of a given variant. So these are the the points I talked about. Uh, our software is is correct. It's transparent. Everybody can see what every everyone anyone else has uh, has assessed. Which is totally uh, standards compliant, and you can uh, add your own standards, and it's up to date. It's, uh, uh, and now the last point: it should be also as fast as possible. 
And actually, this is this is a very uh, important thing because when you have hundreds or thousands of variants in huge data sets like exomes or whole genome sequences, then you uh, you can't do this manually. There are some steps that will always be slow when you do it manually. I, I, I just here I'm going to list a few examples. For example, this. Um, this criterion PM1, located in a mutational hotspot and or critical and well-established functional domain, that is not, not easy to access manually because uh, sometimes as you need to, to check literature, you need to collect data on mutations that have been published and of course they are not going to be publishing one and the same paper. You have to read like five or ten papers to gather all the information. Of course, you can look uh, look up look in, in, in GNOMAT or EXAC and uh, and check for LOF loss of function mutations in the area. But all this all takes time. Here in this software, you just get get all uh, um, pathogenic mutations listed and in a lollipop graph, as I showed before. And you can see how many variants have been published, how many of them are clustered, and whether you are within the clustered region or not. Or something like PM5, the novel missing change as an immune acid residue way of different missing change determined to be pathogenic has been seen before. Again, in your own variant, if you annotate with GNOMAT, there won't be any GNOMAT annotation. You won't see that a GNOMAT entry right away. So you have to go to GNOMAT or EXAC manually and have to check what's around, which kind of mutations are around because they are not annotated within your variant annotation software. You have to check it later on and add this information it takes time. Or PP2, a missense variant in a gene that has a low rate of benign missense variation in which missense variation are a common mechanism of a disease. There are some uh, genes uh, like that out there, for example, actin beta, actin gamma, those are genes where you observe certain diseases like Barretta Winter syndrome, for example, only upon missense mutations. Lots of function mutations would create another phenotype. So this is a, a gene where a missense variant if it shows up at all, is very likely to be or pathogenic. But there are other genes where missense mutations do not play a huge role, like the breast cancer one, breast cancer two genes. Uh, so in most of these cases, PP2 would not apply. But of course, it takes time to to assess the the rate of missense mutations uh, for a given gene. That takes time. The software provides it right away. Or BS1, uh, allele frequency is greater than expected for a disorder. This is also very tedious to to estimate the prevalence and incidence of a given disorder. To calculate with Hardy Weinberg how much, uh, how many carriers should be out there. Then you can calculate that, and you can see how many carriers do you actually see. You can do that, sure, but it takes a lot of time. So this, all these these examples here, and there are only a few of those. And are uh, uh, compiled by the software and uh, provided by software right away, and that saves lots of times. I try to estimate the, the time saving here, and um, of course, uh, uh, if you have um, a small panel with only a few genes and you find a loss of function variant within a gene, you would not save too much time. This is the, the overall time to, to assess a variant like this. So you have like a 20 gene panel. BRCA1, BRCA2, and we have a patient with um, ovarian cancer, and we see a frame shift mutation in BRCA2 that does not take a, a lot of time. So here you wouldn't save too much time using software, but these are rare cases. Most of the time you have bigger panels. Nowadays, you, many people perform exome or genome sequencing, so you have uh, lots of um, 
uh, thousands of genes or hundreds of genes, but you can also have uh, lots of uh, genes that are relevant for it. A given disease. For example, non-syndromic developmental delay, there are thousands of genes out there that might be responsible for, for like, uh, intellectual disability in a child or something like that. So we have more than 100, more than 100 genes relevant for a given disease, and you have a, a, a huge set of data. Then you actually save a lot of time by, by give, using a software that provides all the information for the variants you have observed and you just click through and evaluate or re-evaluate uh, all these criteria and then you can uh, solve uh, or see or detect the relevant mutations pretty fast. So I think this is a scenario where using software uh, instead of doing it manually is most rewarding and there's something in between like if you have a clearly known disease gene and a novel misinformation, it also saves a lot of time using software because then you don't have to, to look up everything as I just said before, uh, misinterpretations around that, is it a missense uh, gene or something like that. So uh, overall, I think we save lots of hours of time by just using software. And I have to repeat once again, uh, uh, the software is very good, but you will always be responsible for your own assessment. You will always have to think for yourself. You need to check. And it's even better if not only you do that, but you do it together with another guy who is an expert in the field. And no matter whether he sits, whether he sits next to you or you share your variants with him over the internet, it's always you always need to to consider all the arguments given by the software by yourself. So that's about it. Of course, when you do variant assessment, you I think you. All of you guys who do that and have ideas how future uh, variant interpretation could uh, could work. So uh, uh, I think I, I personally have a few visions for future uh, um, uh, variant interpretation concerning genotypic data or sequence data. I would like to have more variant databases of clearly healthy individuals. Many, many databases, as I mentioned earlier, are corrupt with people who have a given diagnosis and they don't have it, or uh, some people, for example, in, 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 in diseases which manifest later on, for example, in, like breast and ovarian cancer, you would get it not earlier than uh, at like 20 years of age, and the study includes young children, or a, a disease where mostly um, uh, females uh, uh, um, have the disease and males are just carriers without developing, like in the case of breast and ovarian cancer. Men would not get ovarian cancer, so but they can still be in those databases and their variants can be in the databases, although they carry a clearly pathogenic mutation. So these databases are corrupt or, or are flooded with, with actually pathogenic mutations, although the people were healthy at the time of recruitment. So we need better data where we actually know that these people never had the disease in question like the Flossis database. Or we need more disease-specific variants where, which is free from misdiagnosing. It's only individuals with a very clear diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis should be in there, and only variants from these individuals should be in there. This is also a problem right now. And I, I think um, variant assessment should not be a, a one-person achievement. It should always 
or we should more and more be a, uh, be willing to share our our not only our variants but also our view on these variants, how we access it. And even if you made a mistake, it's better than not uh, recognizing it ever. So we need to talk about our assessments, and we can learn from each other. So I, I would like to to have even more inten uh, intensive sharing of variant assessments across apps. But I also think that we might get more data into it. Many, um, one of the most many important SMG um, criteria is functional assays. And actually, for, for the majority of genes, there are no functional assays around. Only a few of the genes have uh, relevant assays, which have been performed with lots of variants. Recently, a paper has been published by Shendu's lab in Seattle, who uh, created all possible misinformations in BRCA1 and with CRISPR-Cas, and they checked it on cellular level in, in haplo um, in, uh, in haploid cells. And that is absolutely amazing. We need more data of that kind, like actually every possible misinterpretation tested in a, in a relevant assay, and we, we need the data of those. So we need more, more phenotypic data, is hopefully from matching tissues which is uh, like brain tissue is, is going to be a problem for a long time. But I think maybe the organoids will help with that and maybe we can, can one day have organoids, brain organoids, for example, for mini brains, in which all uh, mutations in given uh, disability, uh, intellectual disability genes have been created and checked. And uh, this, this is already on the horizon. Uh, I would like uh, to have future data uh, variant assessment based also on metabolome data that is not too expensive and there are first uh, publications around where people could really show that lots of function variants influence, influence the human metabolome and last year on the ASAG meeting there was also some talks where people could show that having um, uh, data will show that certain metabolites are up or down regulated in the patient's blood that, that correlates with the variants within the enzyme that produce these metabolites. So having metabolome data and incorporating, for example, them into a software, that would be great. If you could upload your VCF file to, along with, with uh, metabolomic data and then the software would check for variations in enzymes, check for the, the level of the metabolite, which is, is uh, processed by these enzymes and see whether they are up and down regulated. That could be very, very helpful to, to assess variants. So you have like a patient, a patient or, or a test or a function assay within a given patient because the metabolome is from the very same patient where you observe your variant. So there's a lot of stuff to do. I think variant assessment is going to be exciting in the near future and is going to keep being exciting. And now I reach my final uh, slide where I summarize what I've just um, presented to you. So in summary, I met our requirements for variant assessment to our complete satisfaction, which means QCI's variant effective was transparent, was standards compliant, was up to date, and was absolutely fast. You get all the information you need at, at a fingertip. And QCI showed 70 to 80% concordance in variant assessment relative to our manual method, but you have to keep in mind these are only the tough nuts. The stop uh, brain splice variants were not included in the study, so if we had included them, of course, we would have considered those as pathogenic, and QCI would have considered those as pathogenic, so that would have, have led to a, like a more than 95 or so percent um, um, <coughs> 
concordance rate. But we did not do that because these are the ones that actually, the missions are the ones that we wouldn't actually want to know how software performs on those. And uh, the, the differences in variant classification are mainly due to time of manual assessment and interpretation of literature, especially uh, the validity of a given assays. So that's all uh, well, uh, there is to it. And, uh, and finally, I would like to thank all the people who contributed in uh, our variant assessment in our lab. I, of course, I did not classify all these 280 uh, variants by myself. We had a lot of people working on this, and they are listed here. And thank you very much for you guys in, 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 in interpreting and assessing all the variants in our lab. Thank you very much, and thank you for your uh, attending this webinar. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rump. A reminder to attendees, you may type in a question at any time during the webinar. You can do this through the control panel, which usually appears on the right side of your screen. In addition, before we enter the Q&A portion of the webinar, we'd like to ask attendees to please take a moment to take our exit survey after the webinar has ended to give us your feedback. We'll now enter the Q&A portion of the webinar. The first question, can you provide more details about how QCI notifies or informs if a variant has a change in annotation? Yeah, so far, uh, whenever you, you, uh, you log in, into QCI and, uh, and you upload the list, for, for, um, then you would see if the variation of one of your, uh, uh, the assessment, sorry, of one of your variations has changed. So you upload a VCF and you can see, oh, this variant uh, has changed in the past. So far, as far as I know, you get, you, got, you do not get notified by, by um, email or something like that. You only get notified once uh, you enter a variant which has been accessed earlier and, uh, and you can see whether it has changed or not. Thank you. Yeah, I hope this is a clear answer to you. Did I answer your question rightly? Yes, thank you. Yes. Okay. The next question, how does QCI reconcile conflicting evidence about a variance pathogenicity from ClinVar or other sources? Uh, sorry, uh, I just, uh, could you repeat the question? I just was uh, distracted. Yes. How does QCI reconcile conflicting evidence about a variant's pathogenicity from ClinVar or other sources? Oh, uh, well, uh, QCI does not solve the, uh, the problem uh, for you. Uh, it, it, it displays conflicting evidence, so you can see in a given variant there is a, is a flag uh, or, uh, or on, on the screen that there is conflicting evidence, and of course, you need to, to figure that out by reading literature, by looking into the ClinVar uh, um, assessment, by looking into, for example, uh, assessments from other papers, uh, that uh, the software can do that for you, because the software can give you a quotation of a, of a, of a given paper and, and can refer to it, but of course, so I can't read uh, 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 the paper. So you need to, to look into it yourself, but the good thing is you get all links for every, every clean entry that's out there, you get the link, you just click on it and you can, can browse through it. 
you don't need to type something in, you just click on the Kindle entry, read it, and you can click on the Cosmic entry or the HMD entry, whatever is available right there, and then you can, can just look at their assessment and the reason for it, and then you need to yeah, make up your own opinion about that. Thank you. Thank you. Next question. If a reviewer changes the ACMG evidence criteria, can they save it for future reports or does it have to be reevaluated each time? No, no, they can save it. They can save it and of course you can you can also decide whether for example you want to uh, display a, a variant in as as main finding or as uh, uh, accidental finding you can you can uh, you can click on a variant and say how if it's uh, in which way it's going to be reported or if it's reported at all and of course you can save every assessment you have made in the past you can see how a variant has been accessed at a given time. Thank you. The next question, several attendees have asked what file type is first loaded into the software. For example, is it raw data or VCF files? Um, you, uh, right now, you can uh, just uh, load a VCF file. Uh, but you can also uh, load a BAM file. For example, if the, your VCF file is derived from a given a BAM file, you can load it up as well. I didn't talk about that here. And when you jump to a variant, you can also see the 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 um, browser view, and you can see, for example, if the mapping is all right, whether uh, you can have a, a, an actual view of the the, the uh, area around this variant, and you can you can see whether it's likely to be a true variant or uh, there might be an, even an, a mapping artifact. So you can load uh, your the source of variant is only VCF so far, and but you can uh, uh, upload BAM, a BAM file as well. But variants cannot be typed in manually or with with other other um, in, in, in other in, in a format other than VCF. But I think VCF is just fine. Most of software nowadays that deals with NGS data deals with VCF. Thank you. A, a follow-up to that question, what type of variant caller do you use? Um, uh, he, uh, in our lab, we use the, the um, CLC genomic workbench or Quadrant genomic workbench uh, also from the same provider uh, uh, to, to, uh, to, um, to load FASTQ files to call variants and uh, to perform the mapping. So we, we use here for this, we use the CLC genomic workbench. Uh, and um, yeah, and we are just fine with it. But sometimes you also use GATK, but mostly we use this uh, uh, um, CAT genomic approach. Thank you. Next question. Do you think that QCI is ready for use in routine, di excuse me, is ready for routine use in diagnostic labs, or is it better suited for specialized labs? How do you see the next three to five years in this regard? Yeah, I think it's it is uh, we we use it in in uh, but of course 
everything you you purchase, uh, even enzymes or whatever, is is in, uh, is meant for uh, research only, of course. But but of course you can use it to collect data, and then the, that's why you need to, have to make your own mind and use it in diagnostics. We actually use the software uh, uh, in diagnostics, but of course we 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 just use the data provided by QCI. Then we make up our own minds what we report, what we don't report, and then we use it in diagnostics. I think it's it's already uh, suited to to support you in your daily uh, routine diagnostics. Thank you. The next question, how does QCI support sharing of variant assessments with other labs? Well, uh, uh, right now you can, when, when, when you are in the process of uh, uploading a, a, a VTF file, a variant list for a given sample, then you have um, a, a screen where you can select uh, individual or type in individual email addresses. But you can also create groups you want to share with. You can work, uh, um, share with, yeah, could be a group like all my friends on the internet. And then you can uh, 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 define this group by entering their email addresses like other sharing, uh, like Dropbox or something. This, it's almost the same. You have a group of, of individuals with email addresses. Then you enter just the group name and all of them uh, will see the very same variant list that you have uploaded. So if you upload 250 variants from one individual, from like exome sequencing, all the people you shared the data with during the upload process uh, will see the very same list of variants. And if you change something, they will see that you have changed something. But as far as I know, it's not possible to share variants after you have uploaded and evaluated them. So you need to know in advance when you upload the variant list to with whom you want to share. Thank you. The next question. When does the software associate the literature to the variant? Is it when the VCF file is uploaded? Yes, yes. Yes, of course. The 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 uh, um, Quietian already knows which which very uh, um, yeah which uh, has a huge database of um, I think it's even manually curated uh, database of of literature. And once you upload your your uh, your variants, somehow the software obviously goes to uh, all of these. Um, I, I get for each publication the list of variants which is in this publication. Which, I, I guess Quaijin uh, already has extracted all the variants of the given literature, and if it shows up in your um, in your own VCF file, I think then uh, it's going to be linked with this paper. But actually, I don't um, I don't know how how this software works in the background. I can only see uh, see what's on top of my screen. I don't know how uh, how the actual databases that are assessed by QCI uh, what they look like and who created those and where they are located. I don't know that. Thank you. The next question: Are there live query capabilities between QCI and the sources that are used as pieces of evidence? For example, population databases. Uh, well, once you upload your variant, for each of the variants, you can see the, the frequencies in GNOMAS, in EXACT, in thousand genomes, uh, and um, yeah, so you can see it right away. But and you, I've checked it. If you type in the the, the same variant manually into GNOMAS or EXACT, you get the very same 
uh, 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 data. So I think these uh, uh, databases are always up to date. I never found a discrepancy so far between what QCI tells me about GNOMAD and what I actually see when I enter the uh, the variant into GNOMAD myself. So I think that is pretty pretty up to date. I've never seen a discrepancy between this so far. Thank you. The next question. How does QCI deal, if at all, with compound heterozygous variants or variants whose classifications are affected by gene haplotypes? For example, variants that are only pathogenic when they appear with another variant in cysts. Well, this is information that QCI normally uh, uh, does not have. Most of the time, you would not know whether they are in cysts or not. If you knew that, for example, by having long reads or something like that, that uh, like uh, uh, min ion reads or something, you would know a given haplotype. But so far as I know, uh, um, uh, there is currently uh, QCI is not dealing with this kind of information. I've never seen whether you can tell the, the software that a given two given variants are in in cis or in trans. I, I, I've not seen any way to enter information like that. Okay, that may be a, a, to a problem to be solved by new versions of QCI. I'm pretty sure that the QCI team is on it. But so far, most of the data come from short read sequences like uh, Illumina. Uh, but I think, yes, that's, that's a good question. I think in the long run, we'll have more uh, types of information like this, like, uh, like haplotype information, we don't have that so far. And even if we had, I don't know. I don't think QCI can deal with it right now. Thank you. The next question, what hereditary diseases or phenotypes can be analyzed by QCI? Can all known single gene diseases be analyzed? Yes, yes. There's a huge uh, uh, list of, of phenotypes you can, if you don't know, uh, actually don't know uh, which kind of disease you're dealing with, for example, like exome sequencing, in, in, uh, you can just uh, uh, enter the phenotype hereditary disorder. But of course, in our case, when I enter variants into the QCI, knowing that they are derived from uh, patients with hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, I can select it. There's a, a huge uh, gene ontology list for all the uh, uh, diseases known so far and uh, um, described so far, and you can select uh, uh, your disease of choice. If you, you know you're looking for variants with Marfan syndrome, for example, uh, you, can, you can upload your variants and tell QCI that uh, your um, disorder of interest is Marfan syndrome. You can, you don't have to do that, but of course you can do that, and all variants are classified in regard to the uh, um, to the clinical diagnosis you are looking at. And so far, I, I have not missed any any disease. All the diseases we were looking at are uh, uh, um, accessible via, via QCI. You can tell you find you find uh, a classification for any disease, and you can enter it when you upload your variants, and the software knows which kind of disease you are looking at. And you can also enter more information like age of your parents, with, which, uh, sorry, of your patient, which might matter in, in, for some diseases. You can also enter that kind of information. And of course, ethnicity. If you have a, a, a Northern European uh, patient, you can also enter the ethnicity. And of course, then um, QCI will check for, for variants described in Northern Europeans. Kyogen. Sample to Insight.